All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. dailyfaceoff.com he is our senior analyst mike mckenna mike what's going on man i'm just admiring that little bit of stubble you have going frank i've always seen you clean shave and i think you might be coming over to my side so by free agency you're gonna have a full beard right no chance it actually uh, all comes in gray so this will be gone by this afternoon just didn't get bummer. around to it yet today crazy hectic morning lots going on lots of things to take care of at home such as you know Little things like paying the bills and other things you haven't been able to do for a long time. Uh, let's dive into it. Let's throw two minutes and 30 seconds up on the clock and let's talk about the Colorado Avalanche and any sort of potential hangover that they might have. After hoisting the Stanley Cup on Sunday night, less than 48 hours ago. And Mike, when you look at their offseason, lots of important decisions for Joe Sackick and the <laughs> Avs front office to make. And I include Chris McFarland in that conversation as well, because I think it's he's going to be at the top of team shortlist in the very near future to join them as a potential GM. I wonder if there are potential changes afoot in the Avs front office. Does Joe Sackick, the rumblings are that Joe Sackick could go up to a president's type role and Chris 
McFarland could be promoted to GM. We'll see what unfolds over the next days and weeks. But when you look at this long list of pending UFAs and a couple important RFAs, including the game-winning goal scorer in Game 6, Arturi Lekkonen, who would you prioritize on this list? First one is definitely Lekkonen to me. He's an RFA, which makes it a little bit easier, Frank. And I think that that's going to get done almost no matter what. You don't trade for that player without making sure you can grab him down the road, especially with what he did in the playoffs and his age. Um, but I, I think realistically, you look at this list and think you need to get a goaltender. You already have Darcy Kemper in house. So my guess is that the Avalanche will probably stick with him. I'm thinking depends on dollars. But beyond that, I would really want to keep Kadri. Having that number two center that performed as well as Nazem Kadri did this year in the regular season in the playoffs, it's not going to come cheap, Frank. Um, but Ron Chris Geary even outlined how it's possible for Colorado to potentially be able to keep Nazem Kadri. They've got a little bit over $25 million in cap space, but it's going to go very quickly. And Frank, I think the biggest question for me is when you look at Burakovsky and Nachushkin, who both need deals, they're going to be probably both be over 500 bucks. You kind of look at them and go, does one of those two not come back? Or does Joe Sack and company consider even trading a Sam Girard with a $5 million cap hit to try to open up space? When I look at it, Frank, I can't help but think that either Burakovsky, Nuchushkin, or Girard, one of those three is probably not coming back with salary cap constraints. If they can pull that off to be able to keep all three of those players, that would be kind of a minor miracle in my eyes. Uh, but that would be my pecking order. I think Kadri is really a key for them in the UFAs. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, if I could just make a few sort of bold predictions right off the cuff based on what I saw, based on the projected contracts and based on you know what where I think it's heading, my guess would be that Kemper doesn't come back. Same thing with Josh Manson. Same thing with Burakovsky and Nachushkin, that they find a way to keep Kadri. Um, and then they also re-sign Arturi Lekkonen. Um Kadri's going to be expensive, do a big raise, mm -hmm. but I think he wants to stay there and win. He's also the oldest of the group already at age 31. Uh, Josh Manson, uh, I think there's going to be lots of interest in him. I, I believe he's willing to take a hometown discount, actually, to go back to Anaheim. Kemper, I just think, is going to be too expensive. And when you look at the way he played in the playoffs, didn't exactly inspire much confidence. I think he collects the cup and moves on in free agency. I think he's looking for something around... Five million, five and a half a year times some term. This is the big contract mm -hmm. for him in his career. He's got to take advantage at this point, especially after winning the Stanley Cup uh, this year. Mike, some big news in the hockey world on Monday, and that was the Hockey Hall of Fame announced its class of 2022, the first time that the selection committee met in person over the last number of years since the pandemic started. And here's where they landed, a pretty sweet class, if I do say so myself, in Henrik and Daniel Sedin, joining Daniel Alfredson. Uh, the Sedins will go in with one of their former teammates in Roberto Luongo in net. Rika Salinen is the female inductee this year. Uh, they actually, interestingly enough, the Hall of Fame couldn't reach her on Monday. I guess she was not expecting or waiting for the call. Uh, so that was fascinating to watch that unfold as they held their media conference call. And a long overdue honor for Herb Carnegie, who finally gets in. You know, this man was awarded the Order of Canada more than 20 years ago. He's been dead for 11 years now, but made such an impact on the game uh, over his tenure and, and just, you know, someone that brought so many new faces into the game. Uh, such important work that Herb Carnegie has done. I, I can't believe that 
it took this long to right a wrong. What stands out to you about this class? One of the few entering the Hall of Fame where there's not a single Stanley Cup championship between anyone on the list. And that's really the big overarching uh, thought process here is where are those Stanley Cups when there's always such a pedigree associated with it. And um, I look at Herb Carnegie and you you gave a lot of, of the background to him, but I mean, he, he started the first credited or first registered hockey school in Canada, skill development, character development, and was a trailblazer, trailblazer is one of the first black players in Canada uh, to really have a chance to be able to go anywhere in the professional ranks, had a tryout with the Rangers and was offered a minor league deal that would have been a pay cut. So he remained in Quebec to continue playing his career. So long overdue there. Um, but, you know, I look at Luongo and in my eyes, absolutely a first ballot Hall of Famer, but no Vezina, no Stanley Cup. But he did win an Olympic gold medal, fourth all time and wins. His longevity to me makes him easily in that class. And um, the Sedin twins and Alfredson, you know, the Sedins both had huge years uh, alternately during their career where Daniel won an Art Ross and a Ted Lindsay in 2011, Henrik and Art Ross and a Hart in 2010. They won gold with Alfredson in 2006. So um, I think of all of these, Alfredson might be the bigger the surprises as, as a 2017 eligibility and now factoring in, but uh, very Swedish, as you said, and to me, all deserving people. Yeah, no doubt about that. Roberto Luongo just passed the eye test for me too. When you watched him, yeah. you know, you saw the wins pile up and a career 918 save percentage is pretty darn impressive for Roberto Luongo. And that brings us to the potential of the class of 2023, still a year away, but wanted to highlight some of the first time eligibles that will be available for selection in 2023. And another goaltender to me that passes the eye test here in Henrik Lundqvist, agree or disagree? Lundqvist is going in first ballot. If he doesn't, there's something incredibly wrong with everybody. Um, his career save percentage, his trips during the playoffs, deep runs with those teams with the New York Rangers mainstay in net and good until the very end. I think he's an absolute lock. Um, I I'm surprised still that somebody like an Alexander Mogilny or Mike Vernon aren't really in the hall yet. That surprises me. But um, of this list, Frank, who do you see as being a first ballot Hall of Famer besides Lundqvist? That's really it. I think you can make a really strong case for Ilya Kovalchuk as a point per game guy, as someone who was one of the very best goal scorers of his generation. Um, Justin Williams played a long time, had some impressive careers, and of course, the moniker of Mr. Game 7, but I don't think that's enough to get you into the hall. Um, Mike Green was someone that was a two-time first-team All-Star, um, a two-time runner-up for the Norris Trophy. I still don't think that's enough to get him in. Uh, there was a significant drop-off for Green in his career, really kind of once he left Washington, had one or two good years in Detroit, and then really was not a very productive player towards the end of his career. And, and Brent Seabrook won those three Stanley Cups for the Chicago Blackhawks and was such a big part of it. Uh, another guy that racked up close to 500 points, uh, played a long time in the league and, and chewed up a lot of minutes for the Blackhawks, but never really passed the eye test for me. Um, and didn't really have that sort of, if this makes any sense when I say it, the Hall of Fame aura or mystique that surrounded him. Uh, but Lundquist, for sure, like he's the one guy, mm -hmm. as, I, as you mentioned, uh, when you consider 
the first 10 years of his career, and of course, he ended up winning a Vezina Trophy, but the first 10 years of his career consecutively, he finished sixth or better in Vezina Trophy voting, a four-time finalist, six or 10 consecutive years of being in the top six at your position uh, is an incredible track record of success. Also, a I believe a 919 career save mm-hmm. percentage over a ton of games, almost 900 games played as a goalie, which is a huge workload. It's massive. And it's just his consistency, Frank. Like I always looked up to Lundquist as someone that one could play a lot, two, uh, always got the best out of his game, but also was a trendsetter. Like he really made a big impact on younger goaltenders with the way he played. We would look to people like Luongo and Lundqvist for those next wave of technological innovations of systematic innovations. So um, I'm all on board the Lundqvist train. I agree Kovalchuk might get there, but is next year the one from O'Gilney? That's the one I keep looking at. I think he deserves to be in the hall. I'd like to see it. Yeah, McGilney is one. And I saw a lot of people barking about Rod Brindamore. I was thinking that maybe Guy Carboneau a couple years back as an ace defensive forward really might have opened the door for someone like Brindamore, who just was an absolute compiler in his career. Um, I would think that at some point, Rod Brindamore gets in and it's probably going to take a class of maybe some weaker first time eligibles like this one upcoming in 2023 that might open the door for someone like him. Uh, there were a lot of people, you know, clamoring for Daniel Alfredson. And of course, he ends up getting in this year. So maybe, you know, moving forward in the future, Rod Brindamore is next up on the list. I also wanted to point out Theo Flurry, a point per game player. Mm-hmm. And the way we look at mental health and how everything's changed with the sexual abuse that he went through at the hands of Graham James to still be a point per game player, to lead the league in scoring. Uh, what a fantastic career he had. And I think we should probably look at his career in a different light now than we did when he retired after the drug abuse and alcohol abuse that he went through. Uh, to get through that on the other side and have that good of a career is pretty darn incredible. Let's talk about the Boston Bruins, Mike. And Don Sweeney, the Bruins announced on Monday, their general manager had signed a, quote, multi-year extension. His contract was set to expire on Friday. So they announced it kind of really no moment too soon. I'm told actually these two sides had agreed to terms on an extension a couple months back. So it's been a while. Um, Don't know why it took this long to get it announced. But nonetheless, Don Sweeney has some heavy lifting to do this offseason for the Bruins who enter with a slew of injuries, who enter with, you know, maybe at least until they sit down and have a formal conversation, a question mark with their captain and Patrice Bergeron, our friend Joe McDonald reporting last week that Bergeron is expected to come back on a one-year deal with the Bees. But this is a team that sort of kind of feels like whether Bergeron is back or not is still in the middle of a bit of a transition you know, what stands out for you when you look at the Bruins in their offseason? How do they remain competitive through the first two months of the season, given the injuries that have stacked up already with Brad Marchand, Charlie McAvoy, and a couple other defensemen? Yeah, Marshawn and McAvoy are really the key for me. Like they're going to be out probably until Thanksgiving time, recovering from their uh, from their separate injuries. So how do you keep this team afloat? through the first half of the season, Frank, that's the biggest question. And that's why Don Sweeney has to get it right with his coaching hire. Like there's no wiggle room here at all. And whoever he decides on better come in and get this team playing the right way from the start of the season. They don't have time to wait, especially in that division. Uh, I think you got to figure out the DeBrusque situation. I suspect that in-house that's probably already done, Uh, but I would like to, I think there probably needs to be 
almost some clearing of the air on that publicly just to know what's going on. But the big one for me, Frank, is to find depth and to find value scoring up front. This team has over 35% of their salary cap tied up in defensemen, which is fine because they have a good defensive core. But those third and fourth lines and even second line center leaves something to be desired in, in Boston. And I think Sweeney's got to make a decision on Nick Felino's contract, $3.8 million. That's pretty much dead space. Do you buy him out to try to give yourself some more room and some flexibility with the cap, something to consider because Frank, this team needs the scoring. They weren't able to do it last year. I didn't think Cassidy had enough really from second and a half line on down. It just wasn't there. They're going to have to find some value scoring contracts for next season. If you're Jake DeBrus, can you put the genie back in the bottle? I mean, you, you had the trade request out there. You signed the two-year extension just to facilitate a trade, but it seemed like a lot of his consternation or issue wasn't with the city or the team or his teammates, but was mm-hmm. simply with the coach. And now the coach is gone. Can you just rescind that trade offer and say, you know what? I like it here and I want to stay. What would you do in that situation? If it was purely between Cassidy and DeBrusque, then yeah, I'm good. If I'm happy to stay in the city, I like my teammates and everything. Uh, and I think the teammates are obviously had to be very well aware of what his complaints or his argument was then yeah, water under the bridge. But we don't know how that festered up to the higher levels. It goes both ways. So um, I, I think we need to find that out with DeBrus because he's a serviceable player and he's a player that can really excel when he's in the right position. No doubt about that. It's uh, going to be a fascinating offseason for the Boston Bruins. Add them to the list. You know, one of those teams that's sort of in that murky middle of, hey, are we uh, are we chasing a Stanley Cup? Or are we retooling? What exactly are we doing here? And Don Sweeney, armed now with that multi-year extension officially, will be the man at the helm doing it, even if that decision was quite a bit unpopular with the Bruins fan base on social media on Monday. Mike, let's get to some draft talk now with our man, Chris Peters. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Pleased to welcome back to the Daily Faceoff show, Chris Peters, for another edition of the Next Wave delivered by DoorDash. 
Chris, I got to start here in that Bob McKenzie from TSN just came out with his draft rankings in the last few minutes since we started our show. And a bit of a surprise. You've been on this since the very beginning. The first person out there back at the midseason rankings to say, hey, you know what? I'm maybe not so sure about Shane Wright. Well, lo and behold, at basically the final draft rankings for Bob McKenzie, the guy in the number one spot is not Shane Wright, according to a poll of his scouts. It is Yuri Slavkovsky. Are you surprised at that? I'm not. You know, I think that this has been kind of the trend line over the last couple of weeks that Shane Wright's grip on the first overall pick has slipped significantly. He didn't really improve his stock in the playoffs. He didn't necessarily improve his stock at any point, really. Um, throughout this season. So that was one of the biggest things with these, these, uh, you know, the, the scouts that we talked to throughout the year is that we haven't seen the progression. We haven't seen it. It, it was an underwhelming season. It, maybe he, ha- he was the victim of expectations um, as opposed to just what, what it was. But, you know, the point production was fair. It was not great for this year. Um, but then you look at Slavkovsky and you say, well, He's only he didn't have great production in his leagues. Are we really going to make this pick based off of two tournaments and how he played in those tournaments? And I think the answer is yes. It sounds that way. I don't necessarily like. Here's the thing about Bob's list is that he he has a poll of scouts, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he's got a Montreal Canadian scout that has said that that they are going to um, not pick Shane Wright. So anything is possible at this point. He did have one scout that had Cooley number one. Obviously, that's who I've had number one. Um, I had Slavkowski three. He was no lower than fourth in the votes that Bob got. So, you know, it, this is this is just part of the trend that has happened throughout uh, this season is that more players have kind of jumped up, not necessarily completely wrestled the number one designation away from Shane Wright, but it's just I think the confidence in Shane Wright as as the best player to come out of this draft has really been rattled. And and now we're seeing it, you know, with with a poll of, of independent scouts that that do this for a living, that, you know, enough of them thought that Uri Slavkovsky was the better prospect. You know, outside of these three prospects that you've just touched on, Chris, Cutter Goche is one that you've definitely given some love. You had him as tops in one of your categories. He was runner-up in another. What are the areas of his game that make him so intriguing to NHL franchises? Yeah, well, in my in my best at every skill piece, I had him as the most best overall athlete. I think he's the most athletic player. He's he's versatile. He is competitive. He's quick. He's big. Um, you know, the fact that he played both center and wing this year is attractive. There are teams that think he can be a center at the next level. There are teams that think he's a wing. Either way, he's got that power element to his game. He's got some high-end skill. He's got a great shot. So all of those things combined have really pushed him up the rankings. I think that there's also he he really stood out at the combine, not just in the in the physical aspects, but I heard a lot of great things about his interview process. A lot of teams came away very impressed with his character. I think of all the players that we're talking about, I think he has maybe the best chance to break up the party of the top three that I've kind of had in my top tier of Slavkovsky, Wright, and Cooley. Um, so Goche is a guy to watch because he 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 is a very intriguing player. He averaged nearly a goal per game in the USHL games this year for Team USA at the National Team Development Program. And it's just been an upward trajectory for him. I think a lot of teams see that there's a very high ceiling because of that athleticism because of the size, the strength, 
and the fact that he will more than likely be playing center next year at Boston College. So um, teams, his value rises when teams believe he can be a center. And if that's the case, then he very well could go much higher than most have projected him. So aside from the three at the top, you know, to think of where Brad Lambert fits in is really one of the fascinating aspects of this draft. You've seen him anywhere from sort of, you know, eight to 11, also down to 35, 42, all over the place. He's also an intriguing story, a dual citizen, Canadian and Finland. His uh, uncle, of course, is Lane Lambert, the new head coach of the New York Islanders. His dad is an NHL agent in Ross Lambert. Um, just he's been all over the map in terms of where player, where teams see Brad Lambert. When you take a look at his game, as it's so polarizing, what are his strengths? I mean, the biggest strength is his skating. He's the best skater in the draft. I've got him listed as the best skater in the draft, and that's been one of the most electric traits that he's had throughout his entire career. He's always been one of the best skaters. What we need to see now is that beyond the skating, he's got to make sure that he's making that count because there have been too many times where his speed gets him into a good position. He can't finish off the play. You look at the numbers there, not very good this season. He split the year. Um, he, he's on his third team in three seasons. Lati is actually his, his hometown club. That's where he grew up. Um, you know, so that's, that's what he considers his home. And, you know, the thing about that is he just didn't have that production this year. You talk to a lot of different guys and their opinions all over the map. I had him 25th. I think there, I have some significant concerns about hockey sense, game to game competitiveness, um, and, and other things like that. But there is no question in my mind that the package of skills that he has is among the very best in this draft. And when you have those elite traits, you have a chance. And so it's going to come down to, can a team get through to him? Can they take the next level? Because he has not progressed. Similar to Shane Wright, he has not progressed as nearly at the level that was expected of him. You know, he made his first under-18 team at 15 years old. Everybody thought he was going to be, you know, the next budding superstar, some, you know, one of the youngest players to play for them at the World Juniors ever. And it just has not materialized. So it's on him to in- improve his development, to, to, to push it forward. That's going to be another interesting thing. What does he do next season? He said he's open to coming to North America. He's open to staying in Finland. If he comes to North America, do they put him in the AHL or do they put him in the CHL? Do they put him with the WHL team? The Saskatoon Blades have his rights. Would that allow him to boost his confidence? He's been playing against men for the last three seasons. You know, Maybe he needs that to, to be able to feel the puck a little bit more to get more offense and things like that. Um, he said he's he's open to whatever the team wants. So if, that's going to be a very critical decision for whoever drafts him. But I think that he's one of those players that's high risk, high reward because he does have those elite traits. So what you're saying is Brad Lambert should maybe consider relinquishing his Finnish passport because he has no finish. I don't know. Uh, just a cheesy, <laughs> cheesy little pun from me. Um, just wanted to go back quickly, Chris, to the top. Um, you know, nine days now from now, the Montreal Canadiens will step to the podium. Given that Kent Hughes said on our podcast, the DFO rundown, uh, just a few days back, they need all the runway they can get to make this decision. How difficult is this choice right now when you're sifting between these three players? It, it's really tough because, unfortunately, in the Canadians' position, 
there isn't a clear answer. And and you want there to be a clear answer when you're drafting number one overall. And I know that there are a lot of Canadians fans in my mentions after I had Logan Cooley. You're planting that seed of doubt. Maybe he's not the number one guy. Then, you know, my good friend, Corey Promen at The Athletic, he had Slavkovsky one on his list. Some seed of doubt further planted, you know, and now with the McKenzie list coming out, it just shows that the industry is very split on these players and they're not sure. And this is not of all the years to have that you, you, you always want to have the choice. You still, but you, you cannot mess this one up. And there is the highest degree of difficulty that we've had in years for who is the number one pick in this draft. And it's starting to look more and more likely that whoever goes outside of the top three, there's a better chance that they're the best player in the draft, a la Kale McCarr, than maybe a Shane Wright or a Uri Slavkowski. There are so many variables at play here. I completely believe Kent Hughes when he says we need all the runway we can get because it has not been a, it has not been an easy decision for anybody to – you just look at the lists around. And yes, Shane Wright is number one on a lot of them, but now we're seeing that the industry is very much unconvinced that he is – the consensus number one. He's not the consensus number one anymore and hasn't been for a while. And now everybody understands that. So the Canadians have to bear that responsibility of not messing this one up and just making the right pick. And maybe Shane Wright not being the consensus guy takes a little bit of the pressure off. They can make the selection they feel is mo- is best for them. Could be Slipkowski. Could be Cooley. Could be Wright. Could be somebody we're not even talking about. It's just, it's that yeah. crazy this year uh, and can't wait. Chris, you were saying this might be an unenviable position for the Montreal Canadiens to be in. I sort of think of it like Kent Hughes mentioned, as I said on our podcast, choice is good. You always want to have choice. They've got their pick of the litter. Let's see what they do with it. Thanks to Chris. This has been another edition of The Next Wave delivered by DoorDash. You see the promo codes there at the bottom of your screen. D-F-O-D-D if you're in Canada. D-F-O-D-D-U-S if you're in the United States. That gets you 25% off and free delivery on your first order. All your favorites and more delivered right to your door by DoorDash. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, guys. All right, Mike, time for our daily face-off inbox question of the day. We got a little daily double hashtag ask DFO, some questions that flowed in via the Twitterverse. The first one up is from Karina, and she says, are the Montreal Canadiens getting offers for Josh Anderson. And Karina, the answer is yes. I do believe the Canadiens and Kent Hughes, his phone has been ringing off the hook with calls for Josh Anderson, but he's been at the very bottom of our trade targets board for the reason that they've gotten some juicy ones too, I think. They've resisted every urge to this point to move Josh Anderson. He's got a skill set that is very unique in today's NHL. He's got skill, he's got an edge, he's got size, and he can skate. So when you put all those things together, he's someone that is sort of the prototypical player for today's NHL. And he's also on a pretty good contract as well, provided that he puts some pucks in the net and increases that production to the level that a lot of people think they can. So I think the Montreal Canadiens would like to keep him. I think they're going to try to keep him. But Ken Hughes also resisted just about every overture for someone like Arturi Lekkinen until he got to the point right in an hour or two before the trade deadline, Mike, where he said, you know what? This offer is too good. I have to trade Arturi Lekkinen. They get a second-round pick and a first-round pick in defenseman Justin Barron. So they had to pull the trigger. What would you do if you're Montreal? 
Well, it depends what you're being offered. And at five years left at $5.5 million for Josh Anderson, I I still think that that contract was a little bit of a reach given his production, but he does have a really specific skill set, like you said. And with those five years remaining at a really constant figure in a flat cap world, Frank, I can't help but think that Anderson's going to stay put unless it's a crazy offer because... That five years is within the window of when Kent Hughes and company in Montreal thinks that that team's going to be challenging again. So in my eyes, you'd want to have Anderson towards that. And you need to at least keep some core pieces around. And I think he's very much in that mix. Yeah, he's. you can pencil him in for just about 20, 22, 25 goals a season. And I still think there's more to give. So uh, someone averages 0.26 goals per game so far in his career in Montreal. Uh, I, I happen to like the contract. I know you mentioned the term, but at, with that skill set, at that sort of guaranteed number, as the cap will finally begin to increase, five and a half is not really going to look like way too much. So um, certainly something to keep in mind. And then a second question that had popped up on the Twitterverse, this one from Jacob, he says, percentage of James Van Riemsdyk moving and in what sort of deal in that case? Jacob, I'm going to put this pretty low, probably somewhere around 10 to 15%. And if you're surprised at that, I think the reason for it is this. A lot of teams are looking at that cap hit and they're saying, uh-uh, I don't want that, $7 million. Um, you know, He's someone that um, can also be penciled in really consistently for like 20 to 25 goals. And I think the Flyers are hoping that Van Riemsdyk is able to get off to a bit of a hot start so that when the trade deadline rolls around, he had 24 goals in 82 games last year, played all 82. When the trade deadline rolls, he could be a really attractive asset if you're willing to eat half and bring it down to $3.5 million or potentially even less than that, uh, given that he'll be a pending unrestricted free agent and a pure rental. So I think to pay a little bit more to move him now doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it seems more like one of those trade deadline trades. I feel you, Frank, especially at $7 million. You know, if you're a team that's trying to look for some scoring, you know, you can probably try to find 20 goals in house if possible in a lot of places that might be looking at a player like Van Riemsdyk. And that gives you about a half a season to figure out if your players can do it themselves or if your free agent signings can without having to make a trade for a premium. So I do think that Van Riemsdyk, especially with one year left, you're looking at trade deadline or maybe even like a Toffoli type, you know, a month or two in advance, a little bit earlier where teams probably know what they're getting in the player. Yeah, not a lot of flash, um, certainly not a lot of dash, but for James Van Riemsdyk, just consistently puts the puck in the net. Every year you look at the stat sheet, 24, 28, 27, he just does it. And so he's one of those guys too, I think, you know, may not be the quickest, but, you know, even at his age now uh, where you're looking and you're saying, okay, what's next for him in his career at E3? I think he's one of those guys that can be a productive goal scorer until age 37 or 38 because of the way that he plays in front of the net, getting puck sticks on pucks. He's just one of those guys that shows up and is there and you go, how'd that happen? Oh, wait, another 28 goal season. So James yeah. Van Riemsdyk, look for him at the trade deadline. Mike, let's bring in Tyler Remchuk for our daily face-off daily bet segment. Tyler, a little bit of a year in review as there's not a whole lot to gamble on at the moment. When it's all said and done, how did your record end up? 
Well, uh, the playoffs weren't great for me. I finished down about three, 3.25 units in the playoffs. But luckily for me, it was a good regular season. So we put together a few numbers on that. I went back through the year, double checked all of my math. And it w- it started off really, really well. And for me, it was kind of like, wow, I'd, I've never really dug in on a day-to-day basis like this, doing as much research for betting as I had. And I mean, through October and November combined, we were up over 15 units. December was pretty much average. And early in the year, I was making a lot of my correct picks just on betting favorites. And early in the year, favorites were winning a lot. So things were going well. And then favorites stopped winning at a rather alarming rate. And that was January and February. You can see the dive and the jump down this graph takes all the way down at the end of February on the year as a whole. I was down close to five units. It was really not going well. And what kind of caused the uptick in March and April is I moved away from betting on favorites and I went to betting on more player props than I was earlier in the year. And that's really where things started to turn around. And it's part of the reason why April really saved my bacon going up 10 and a half units in the final month of the season with just some killer player props. So after I looked at all this, Frank, I decided to go and dig into what players I bet on the most. In the NHL, there were four players that I bet on three times for player props. It was Gustav Nyquist, weird name there, Rupe Hints, Alex Ovechkin, and Claude Giroux. But there was also a collection of four players I wagered on, or three players I wagered on four times, Patrice Bergeron and Connor McDavid, who I went two for two betting on those guys. And the player who I named my most valuable bet of the year, Nazem Kadri. I bet on him four different times throughout the season, and he came through for me every single time nothing but nazem kadri assists and on the year i finished up north of 5.2 units an honorable mention uh, to wrap this up to jeff skinner as well who i bet on two times during the season both in the final week of the year him to get an assist twice plus 3.5 units on those two bets so when you look at my regular season as a whole plus almost 12 units a quarter of that simply came from betting on Jeff Skinner in the last week of the season. So it's interesting to look back on things like that. Also, the player who I actually bet on the most was Mika Zibanejad, who I wagered on a total of five times going three and two. So that's sort of my year in review. A bunch of really interesting lessons learned that I'm looking forward to carrying over into next season. Pretty impressive chart, too. It looked like I was looking at Bitcoin there for a second, the way that that just... <laughs> Uh, but you, you found a way to to get back up again. And if, or if you're a novice better and you're watching or listening, up 12 units for the year means that if you bet $100 every time on what Tyler said, you'd end up with $1,200 extra in your pocket at the end of the season based on and Tyler's work alone. If you were to bet $100 on every play, it's worth noting that would be 334 bets is how many I placed throughout the season on the show. So that's uh, that's quite a heavy investment. Yeah. So what is that? 33,000 to make 1,200? Is that math right? Yeah, it'd be 33,000 to make 1,200, which uh, when you look at it on the whole as a year, it's rather alarming. But again, when you factor in the graph and at any moment, you wouldn't have been down any more than 500 bucks on the season as a whole. It's all about, you know, they say bankroll management, right? You start at the beginning of the season with a chunk of money and you just roll with that chunk of money for the whole year and don't touch it. So uh, yeah, when you look at the $33,000 to make 1,200, it kind of go, okay, that's, that's a little dicey. That's also the emotional aspect, man. (laughs) You get to enjoy it. 
Yeah, well, or or not enjoy it at certain points, depending on where you are on the chart. Hopefully, uh, your fiance Amber does not see this segment and uh, does not see uh, how you how you ended up quite well. But you know, at a certain point there, and, and the sheer <laughs> volume of bets. Uh, thankfully, uh, you are our daily face-off, daily bets expert, uh, <laughs> hey. and certainly appreciate your commitment as well, Tyler, because. A lot of people don't may or may not know this, but you are actually making the bet that you say on the show. Yeah. Every single yeah, time. Yeah. And for yeah, for me, like I wagered every single time. If I said it on the show, I bet it with my own money. Um, so for a while there it was dicey. But the other thing I found was I almost didn't even care about the money. It was like the pride that came from me of like, all right, I said it like this better <laughs> hit. Like my ego's online here. Also, Frank, um, because my dad listens to the show and I don't want his eyebrows raised, not my fiance. <laughs> Okay. Well, okay. Yes. Uh, apologies there. Uh, I was not trying to break some news that did not happen. So, uh, You're an you insider, go. but not that kind the of insider, insider got flagged. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's not the type of inside information I deal in. So apologies there and congratulations on a great year. We're proud of you and appreciate the commitment that you make you. Uh, every day to bring our, our viewers and listeners something a little bit different and to put some skin in the game too, as well says a whole lot. So thank you to Tyler for our daily face off daily bet segment. Let's uh, get to garbage time with Mike McKenna. What do you got, Mike? The injuries, and we get them every year at the end of the Stanley Cup playoffs, looking at what the players played through to achieve a Stanley Cup championship. And it wasn't just for the champions in the avalanche. Uh, Valerie Nachushkin sent out a picture of his foot after the series. Frank, was he in a wheelchair, I heard? Did that really happen? Yeah, like look at his foot, like puck puck off of it. Um, but you look at the laundry list that the Lightning were playing through, and you can see why they looked, frankly, slow in the finals uh, compared to Colorado. It's you look at points. He had a significant quad tear. Are you kidding me? Like I don't even know how you get on the ice with that. Hagel fractured foot. Belmar meniscus. Kucherov and Paul both had MCL sprains. Uh, but one of the big ones for me, Frank, was that. Anthony Sorelli had injuries to both shoulders and Sorelli was so important as a two-way player for the Lightning. And you could see his effectiveness start to wear off as that series went as those injuries took effect uh, from face-offs to puck battles and all those things. So it does show how the injury bug can affect a team. It's for both sides, but man, to me, Tampa really had it tough this year. Yeah, it's amazing, too, that Braden Point quad tear knew about that for a while. But to see him try and come out to play the next period, that was in the first round against Toronto. He tried to skate, you know, right after the intermission. Everyone was shocked to see him back. And, you know, he tried. That guy worked his butt off to try and get back in. Uh, Anthony Sorelli, as you mentioned, the ineffectiveness sort of as we went down the stretch. It's always fascinating to see what's happening behind the scenes. A lot of guys even more banged up you know, just bumps and bruises, normal day-to-day stuff. Like they've been in pain for a long, long time and see what they were able to grind through to get that far is certainly impressive. And you mentioned Nachushkin. I was sitting there typing my story. It was like, I don't know, two something Eastern time, still at the rink. And the abs at this point had already kind of come out and carried the cup down the hallway to the bus. Gabriel Landeskog and a whole group hooting and hollering. Bowen Byram had a message for us to put on social media. And at some point, Nachushkin and McKinnon walked out. And McKinnon was obviously getting some kind of treatment for something. But Nachushkin 
he hobbled maybe like 30 or 40 feet. And then there was some guy that was carting around like sodas or something like, uh, like freight. And he's like, Hey, do you mind if I hop on and just give me a ride to the bus? So he just <laughs> sat on this cart and got a, a ride to the bus so that he could get back to the hotel. Cause he legitimately couldn't leave the rink on Man. his own two feet. Imagine just trying to get your foot into a skate like that, Frank. Nazem Kadri couldn't even tie his own skates, he said. He had to have a trainer tie his skates. Incredible yeah. what players are willing to put themselves through to win a championship. I've been there. I've played with pulled groins before in finals. You don't even think about it when you're on the ice, Frank. Yeah, Nachushkin reportedly needed, quote, medical assistance to get his foot in the boot just to play in game six, something he will never forget and would probably do it over again 100 times out of 100. Mike, that's why it is the toughest trophy to win in sports. Impressive stuff. That'll do it for today's edition of the Daily Faceoff Show. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com for all the latest news, insight, and analysis from around the National Hockey League. Nine days until the NHL draft. Man, is it going to be interesting. Interesting. Buckle up as Chris Peters was just talking about what the Montreal Canadiens do with that number one pick. We'll be talking about it in the days and weeks ahead to free agency as well. July 13th, just around the corner. Stay tuned. We'll talk to you on Wednesday, 12 noon Eastern. You know where to find us. Subscribe on YouTube. We'd love to have you along for the ride. Until then, have a great day, everyone. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. And let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal. Every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? 
but there's more. You gotta decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount, and that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's gonna find the back of the net first, and you're gonna wanna be careful, because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you gotta predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.